0: Okay, well, here we are. Welcome to Friendship. We're in week three of the series, How the Nations Rage. We got kids and families in the room. Welcome. Uh, they're going to be so bored with what I have to say, so I'll try to get this, uh, make this interesting for the rest of us. Um, but no worries. Uh, I'm not going to be stressed by kids and all that stuff. Um, I do want to say, rewind, I want to say thank you all for the gift and for the support and love and encouragement that, uh, that I feel, our, our family feels, um, Every single week here, we're so grateful for this church and the people of this church, the way you love and support us. I'm thankful for our other pastors, uh, Jack and Keith and their families. Um, I do also wanna give a shout out to our tech team. I'm so thankful for, her. Laura is gonna be, she's running our screens and she's flying blind this morning, all right? So she's gonna be, she, she doesn't see what's coming up next. So she's gonna try to track with me, but she may or may not be able to, and that's okay. She'll get up what she can. Um, but if you want notes, um, go to our Bible app, all right? Go to our Bible app. It has all of the scriptures and everything in there. If you need help finding it, go to friendshipwire.com Bible. It'll tell you how to get uh, to that. So we're in the series. Um, we are finishing up this series. Pastor Andrew is like, hallelujah, this is the last week of the series. This has not been easy for me. This is challenging for me to talk about the subject matter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard when you're speaking about certain things that are very polarizing um, to not want to try to please people, but I want to please God in this. Um, and I don't want to bind anybody's consciences to anything but what the Word of God says. Uh, but it's hard not to... To throw in some of your personality and opinions. And so some of the things I say this morning, um, man, have grace again on me, but also know that I'll probably say some things that maybe you don't necessarily agree with or you don't like. um, And and that's a chance for uh, all of us to wrestle with some of these things. Just don't throw any tomatoes or whatever, you know, Um, if you want to talk to me afterwards, feel free to do that. But we're going to go through this week. We're talking about a couple weeks ago, we talked about the role of government. Last week, we started talking about the role of the church which we're gonna to continue today. We talked about our political, our political identity last week. This week, we're talking about our political activity. And I said this last week, and I'll continue to say this, that our, our identity always drives our activity. So who we are always drives what we, what we do. And it's the same way as, as followers of Jesus, as, as with our political identity, how we see ourselves politically, as, as followers of Jesus, will dictate or drive what we do politically. Um, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have. A, we said this last week, you have a different identity, a fundamentally different identity uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, that when you put your faith in Christ, he made you a son or daughter of God, he, he inserted you into his family, into his kingdom, and everything changed for you, everything shifted. So let me give you a, an example of what this looks like. I said this, I think, last Uh, the last service last week, but as of Monday of this previous week, the Tate family became a dog family, all right? Some of you heard that. This is our eight-week-old Boston Terrier. His name is Roman. If if you knew that we got a puppy, you knew I had to work this into the sermon somehow, all right? The way this works, the reason we got Roman is because when my kids were little, I mean, I had tons of good illustrations that I could use while preaching, now they're not so little, not quite as cute as they used to be. And they're kind of like, Dad, just don't talk about us. And so I had to get we had to get some kind of sermon illustrations, <laughs> pump this up. All right. So we, we got Roman. Annette and I went to Alabama on Monday to pick up little Roman. He's been great. But you know what? Becoming a dog family. This has fundamentally changed everything about our family. Annette and I have been married for 21 years and maybe a year ago we got a hamster. That was our first pet other than the couple goldfish we killed years ago. Um, But we we have not been a, a pet family. And this has fundamentally changed everything about how we do life. Our identity has gone from not a dog family to now a dog family. And so it affects everything. Even this morning. This is our first Sunday morning going to church, but having a dog at home. And so now it's like, oh, how do we do this? How do we, we all come here early and all this. So how do we work this out to feed him, take him potty, all these things. And then it's raining. Now what are we supposed to do? We don't, this is a whole new wrinkle. We've got to learn all this stuff. So who we are, our identity has changed because now we're a dog family. And so it affects all of our actions. You, you, are you tracking with me? This, it, it, it's for some of you, you've been a pet family or a dog family for so long um, that you don't even remember a time where you weren't a dog family. If you're a dog person, give me a big, hearty amen. amen. All right. If you're a cat person, give me a loud, hearty, I repent. Okay, <laughs> just kidding, all right. Um, but some of you don't even remember a time when you weren't a dog family or a pet family. It's been so long, and so your actions have always been a certain way. For us, it's brand new and it changes everything. So let me relate this to our new creation identity. We put our faith in Christ. Everything fundamentally changes. Some of you have been saved since you were a young kid. Maybe you don't even remember a time when you weren't. For me, it was at age 17 when my life turned upside down when I met Christ. And so I still remember what it was like before I came to Christ. But this is why identity is so important. This is why it's important for us to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, because it should dictate and drive everything that we do. And the longer that we've been a follower of Jesus, the easier it is for us to forget our new identity. And so we're going to see as we look into Colossians 3 here in just a moment, uh, actually, let's, let's go there right now. Colossians 3, we're going to see or be reminded of our identity, which drives our activity. And so, Colossians chapter 3, I just want to, to set the stage for all this. I want to read Colossians 3. 1 to 15, which reminds us of who we are and the behavior that flows out of that. So Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse number one, if then you have been raised with Christ, okay, this is who you are. We just sang about it. This is, I am who you say I am. If this is our identity, we've been raised with Christ, here's what we're to do. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ, In God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, on account of these sins, on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... Okay, so he's he's telling us to put on this new self. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Again, he reminds us of our identity, who we are. He's not just saying, stop doing these things, start doing these things. He reminds us, here's who you are, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Because this is who you are, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, uh, if one has a, Complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, I don't know if you're thinking, and typically we read through Scripture and we just we kind of divorce it from real life, but... Think about what what Paul has said to us about the people, who we are as the people of God, how we are to behave in the middle of 2020, in the midst of an election season, that we're to put off the old self, we're to put off anger and wrath and malice and slander, and we're to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility, we're to, to be forgiving and forbearing with one another, loving as Christ has loved us. Doesn't it take on a whole new kind of meaning when we think about it in our current context because y'all so many of us followers of Jesus we're not living necessarily the way that we've been called to live because we've forgotten who we are. And so this morning we're going to talk about our political activity and I want it to flow out of what we talked about last week which is our identity. So, here's here's the first thing we talked about last week. We said theocracy before democracy. So as followers of Jesus, we say theocracy, which is God rules, God reigns. He is the supreme authority in our life because he comes, theocracy comes before democracy. Democracy is good, it's great. But as a follower of Jesus, lordship belongs to Jesus first and foremost. If that is true of our identity, here's a couple things that that we can be doing that flows out of that. So let me give you a few thoughts here. Because theocracy before democracy we're to set our mind or our affections on things above. We saw in Colossians 3, the first couple of verses, Paul says, you know, if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. And he, he says, we can place our, another translation says, set your affections, the things that you think about, you feel, the things that you love. Set your affections not on things on the earth, but on the things above, and what we have to do as followers of Jesus is constantly set and reset our, our affections and our minds on things above. Because it's so easy to get caught up in the stuff of our day and the distraction and all the noise. This is why it's important to spend a few minutes at least every morning getting with God and praying or reading his Bible so that we can reset and say, God, before I go into this day, I'm, putting, I'm setting my affections or I'm resetting my affections back on you. Because all the things and all the noise and even the political drama is gonna try to draw my affection to it. So care about the things on this earth, but don't set your affection and your mind there. All right, and this sets the scene for everything else that we're gonna gonna talk about this morning. So set your mind, your affection on things above. A second thought is this, pray for government leaders while trusting God's sovereignty. Pray for government leaders while trusting God's sovereignty. So we know that we've been called to pray for our leaders, right? We know that that's basic. We understand that. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says this. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Notice it says don't just pray for your leaders, but give, offer thanksgiving for them. And I know we're like sometimes we go, okay, president or any other leaders that you don't maybe agree with, we're still to pray for them, right? But when was the last time you gave thanks for that leader that you don't see eye to eye with, that you, you staunchly oppose? But he said, we're to pray for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're to pray for government leaders. This is what we're called to do because... Theocracy comes before democracy. But this idea of trusting God's sovereignty, I think this is a big one. The scriptures, and I I personally, I place a high view on the sovereignty of God. What what sovereignty means, uh, it means um, that God is, is in control, that he is the ultimate power. He is the ultimate authority. And so to trust that God is in control is something that we've been called to do as followers of Jesus. Uh, let, me call, let me call your attention to Isaiah 40, 21 through 23. The prophet says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And I love this passage because even when scientists were still trying to figure out uh, that the earth was round and not flat like the scriptures God even spoke to this and said that the the earth is a circle and he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So he's this powerful sovereign being. In verse 23 it says, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And so we're reminded of the power of God that, that he is sovereign, that he is He is more powerful than the most powerful forces on this planet, that he brings princes and rulers to nothing as he pleases. Daniel chapter two, Daniel, the the book of Daniel is an incredible lesson in how to live as an exile in a land where you you don't belong, where you are part of another nation, and and how to live under the authority of, of rulers who may not honor God, may even be opposed to God. Daniel's an incredible book for this. Uh, Daniel chapter two, I want you to see something. There was a king named Nebuchadnezzar that was powerful. And he had a couple dreams that, that God enabled Daniel to interpret. And in Daniel two, God has given the interpretation of, of a dream of Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. and, And God has a conversation with Daniel, Daniel 2, 20. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Catch this next phrase. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What Daniel is acknowledging as he's praying to God is that, God, you are are all powerful and that you set up kings and you remove kings. In other words, there's never a time when you are not in control of everything that's going on. Maybe he doesn't, dictate everything. He allows things and works all things together, but he has the power to set up and remove kings. And there's an incredible story. A couple chapters later in Daniel 4, I wish we could go there, where King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's so proud and full of himself, and he thinks that the, his empire has grown because of his greatness, and God humbles him, humbles him for seven years to the point to where he recognized that God, you are the king of the universe and that you set kings and rulers in place as it pleases you. And y'all, I'd encourage you to go to Daniel chapter four and read through that as you see the, the, the turning and the repentance of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. But we're to pray for government leaders while trusting God's sovereignty. And so let me say this, what this means is that the world is not going to come to an end if the wrong party is elected. Can I just remind you of that? Because I think we forget that. And I'm not saying don't fight for your your party and your beliefs, but here's the deal. The world is not going to come to an end if the wrong party gets in place. Now, as a disclaimer, if it does, (laughs) if and when the world comes to an end, it is only because the sovereign God of the universe has decreed it. He's the one who sets up rulers and brings them down. If your party doesn't win, newsflash, the world's not gonna come to an end, but if and when it does, it's because God is in control. And so we're to pray for our government leaders while trusting God's sovereignty. It's easy in the midst of all this to go, man, if that party wins, man, I mean, how many times have we heard this is the most important election in our, in, like, ever? And we hear that every, every election season, right? And, and maybe it's true, but the reality is the world's not going to come to an end until God says, right? He is sovereign over all. And so, because theocracy before democracy, we set our mind, our affection on things above. We pray for government leaders while trusting God's sovereignty. Here's, here's a second identity piece that we talked about last week. We talked about being Christian before American. It's great to be an American, but before we're an American, we're a Christian. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven before we're citizens of this nation. And so we have to remember this identity piece, Christian before American. And if that is true, if that's who we are, here's here's a big thing that we we need to do. Here's an activity for us. We're to seek biblical wisdom while allowing for Christian freedom, seek biblical wisdom, but allow for Christian freedom. What Christian freedom or Christian liberty means is is this, that we are free in Christ, that we can make our decisions, that we can seek the Lord, seek his direction, and we wanna be faithful to what he says. But within our Christian lives, there's room for us to disagree on things because some things aren't black and white in scripture. There's a lot of gray area. In fact, what we have to do is we have to learn to discern between law and wisdom, law and wisdom. Law is, is you know, some of the things that God has, has declared are, you know, he speaks as our supreme authority. And where the Bible speaks in binding ways, we as followers of Jesus and all humanity are bound. And so that's law. These are things that are unchanging principles that, that apply no matter the time or the place. And that's, those are things that are, we would call law. But then there's this area of wisdom, which is all other matters where we have to learn how to, to live in this fallen world and use judgment and discernment and try to navigate what God says with the reality in which we live. And so a lot of what we deal with, a lot of issues are in this wisdom category. So let me, let me give you an example of this law and wisdom. Uh, in First Kings chapter 3, we'll go there in a second, but Solomon who the Bible says was the wisest man who ever lived. He was the son of David, greatest king of Israel. He took over the throne and God said, okay, Solomon, you're taking over. What's, what's one request that you have? I'll give you, I'll give you one wish. What's, what's the one thing you want? Anybody remember what Solomon asked for? He asked for wisdom. He actually, the phrase was, give me an understanding mind to govern your people. And I remember before I came here to lead, Not knowing that COVID-19 was coming. One of my prayers was, God, give me wisdom to lead your people. Because I'm really not that smart. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? God, I need your wisdom to help me to govern your people, to lead this church. But someone asked for it. And I don't know if you remember the story. There's this kind of funky, cool kind of story that comes. Because immediately, he needs wisdom. There's this, immediately after God says, I'll give you wisdom to lead. Two women come to him and they both have they live in the same house, they both have babies about the same age. In the middle of the night, one of those babies dies, and those both of those women come to the king and say, This baby that is alive is mine. So Solomon's going, okay, which one's being honest, truthful, which one's lying? And you know what? You know what Solomon's response was? This is kind of morbid and sounds a little thick, but he was like, Bring me a sword. <laughs> Bring me a sword. Okay, if, if neither of you're going to tell the truth, uh, I'm going to we're going to divide this baby in half, and each of you get your half. And, and you know what happened? The real mother said she can have, she can have. Why? Because she loved the child, and she said, I'm not going to let this happen to my child. Solomon immediately knew she's the real mother, and so he asked for wisdom. God gives him wisdom, even though it sounds kind of weird. But here's the response in 1 Kings chapter 3, when all the people saw and heard this. 1 Kings 3.28, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so this is kind of the Bible's political philosophy in a nutshell. Is, is wisdom to do justice. Wisdom. We need the wisdom of God to do justice. Because again, a lot of things aren't black and white. Here's a quote from Jonathan Lehman. He says, the Bible cares more about whether a government pursues justice by the wisdom of God than it cares about what form of government a nation possesses. So, I'm a fan of democracy, I love democracy, but God in the Bible, he's more concerned that a government is pursuing justice by the wisdom of God than it is the form of government that 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 nation takes. And, And so we're to seek biblical wisdom, allow for Christian freedom. So let me open a can of worms. What does that mean when it comes to issues? How do we have biblical wisdom, but allow for Christian freedom when it comes to all the issues of our day? all of which are very polarizing, right? How do, we, how do we seek biblical wisdom and allow for Christian freedom? Here's where it gets fun, all right? Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, let's go. Maybe that's just me that needs to take a deep breath. Um, we're gonna discern, how do we discern the issues? One of the things that Jonathan Lehman talks about in his book, How the Nations Rage, that I think is really helpful, is we've gotta, we've gotta, we've gotta make a differentiate between what are called straight line issues and jagged line issues. Straight line issues and jagged line issues. So let me explain the difference. A straight line issue is an issue that you could, you could trace a straight line from the Bible right to that issue. Straight line. I mean, it, it applies immediately. A jagged line issue would be an issue where God cares about this, that God speaks into this, but it's not like a clean straight line. It's kind of a jagged line. And this is the area that where there's more wisdom that is required. So let me, let me give you some examples of each to help us, us clarify. So a, some straight line issues. Let me just, let me try to be frank here and talk about what I, I see are some, some big straight line issues. This, and again, I'm not trying to put myself on one side of the aisle or other, but what I see as some straight line issues, maybe the biggest one is abortion. Abortion is a straight line issue because God from the start, from the start when he, Excuse me, hit puberty there. <laughs> what God did in Genesis nine, that we looked at a couple weeks ago when he instituted government, the reason he did that, he, he wanted to render, render judgment for justice because Cain killed Abel and murder <clears throat> and sin populated the earth. And so God instituted government and said, you're gonna take a life for a life. If murder occurs, murder is sin. The taking of an innocent life is sin. And so I'm authorizing humans, I'm authorizing this government to execute judgment for the sake of justice. And the reason for that was at the end of that passage we saw in Genesis 9, was because humans have been made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. And so they're valuable. And so I don't want a life to be taken. That is murder. And he reiterates that in the Ten Commandments and all throughout the Old and New Testament. Murder is sin. The taking of life is sin. And so you can draw a straight line from the issue of abortion from the scriptures to that issue. Another issue that I would say is a straight line issue would be marriage. And really, gender, sexuality, all the things that fit into that bucket. And it's it's a it's a big bucket, and it's a very polarizing one. And there's a lot of tension there because God, again, in the beginning, when he instituted government, he said, the reason I'm doing this is because every single life is valuable, because every life was created in my image. And that includes every person of every persuasion, whatever their sexual preference is, whatever, whatever they, want, they want to land on gender identity and all these things. And so we have to balance this loving people because they're created in the image of God. And yet this is a straight line issue. God has spoken about marriage from the beginning and again, all throughout, Jesus speaks to it again in his ministry, this idea that God has created man and woman to be together and to become one flesh so that they could be fruitful and multiply the earth. And so we could talk more about this, but marriage, gender, sexuality, all that stuff, I believe it falls into that straight line issue Uh, Let me say this when it comes to gender and sexuality, though. um, We we need to see a difference between laws that criminalize activity and laws that support and subsidize activity that God calls sin. Okay, so I I wouldn't say if if someone is struggling with gender identity or homosexuality or things that God calls sin— I'm not saying let's criminalize them, maybe not necessarily create laws to criminalize them, but we don't wanna support and subsidize what God says is sin, right? That's a straight line issue. Now, a jagged line issue, and there's all kinds of them. So let me give you some examples. God speaks over and over uh, about caring for the poor. God cares about the poor, That that is clear. But how does that play out when it comes to policies and issues? That requires wisdom. It's a jagged line issue. We can trace that issue back to the scripture because God speaks about caring for the poor. So we should care for the poor. Now, we're gonna have to ex- exercise judgment and discernment. We're gonna have different opinions on the wisest way to do that, right? So that's a jagged line issue. Another jagged line issue would be, um, you know, God talks a lot about as God's people, we're to care for the stranger, for immigrants, for those who are outside of, of, of God's people or outside of the nation of Israel is, is the illustration early on, but it, it permeates throughout Scripture. We're to care for what God calls as the stranger or the foreigner. So immigration, isn't it, we can trace that back to the Scriptures. How does that play out when it comes to policies and, and all of that? How are we gonna execute that in our nation? That requires... Wisdom. So that's a jagged line issue where, where we may agree that this is this is important to God, but we gotta allow for some Christian freedom. You see what I'm talking about? Uh, some of the straight line issues. We say God has made this clear. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold on to this. But there's some jagged line issues that we have to say, okay, let's agree to disagree. We have some Christian freedom because if we're tracing it back to scripture, and again, it's gotta be, let's trace it back to the Bible. How, is, how does it connect to what God has said? Not just our preferences, not just our wants, not just what makes us comfortable, but what has God said? So straight line issues versus jagged line issues. For me, that was helpful. I hope as you think through issues that this can help you. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you could only vote for a straight line issue. And I think a lot of Christians, a lot of Christ followers will do that. They'll say this issue is the most significant one. And so whether I like the president, his character, all that stuff, I'm voting this issue. You can do that, all right? Um, but this is, this, is the, this is the battleground that we live in, that we have to exercise wisdom, biblical wisdom, but allow for some Christian freedom. Because even on straight line issues, for example, abortion, uh, we may agree that that is a straight line issue that God has spoken to, but we may not agree on the best way to implement or to, to, um, to execute that in, in our nation. So for example, uh, I would say I'm pro-life, but does that mean that I'm, I feel the best way to promote that is to do a pro-life march? Maybe, maybe not. You see what I'm saying? We, we may not agree on how we, we implement Uh, or strategize when it comes to that straight line issue. So even there, we've got to allow for some grace. Here's a good rule of thumb. This has been around for a long time, not in the realm of politics, but in terms of God's people. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So in essentials, man, we have unity. It's around the person, and the work of, of Jesus and the things that God has said clearly. And non-essentials are things that are maybe, not saying they're not important, but maybe they're secondary. Man, we, we allow some liberty, some Christian freedom, but in all things, charity, which is love, the way that we love one another. And I think this is, is, is really, for Christ followers, maybe the biggest issue is not just what we hold to, but it's how we hold to those things and how we live that out and how we interact with people who don't agree with us because Christian liberty is essential. Our, 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 our unity depends on it as the church and our witness to the world depends on us being able to allow one another some Christian freedom in our walk with Christ. And so because Christian before American, we need to seek biblical wisdom Yeah, allow for Christian, or biblical wisdom, but allow for Christian freedom. So let me hit this third area of identity. We talked about it last week, partnership before party. We're talking about our partnership in the gospel, that our mission is to reach people with the good news of the gospel. And because we put our partnership with one another above party, we put God's people in our partnership in the gospel together above. Above party, because that is true, here's a couple things that we need to do our behavior, our activity. First of all, this invest our political hopes firstly in the church. Invest our political hopes firstly in the church. What I mean by that is we need to view the church as the hope of the world. And I'm afraid what can happen too easily in an election season is that as followers of Jesus or as people in general, as humanity in general, we can view government as the hope of the world, or our party as the hope of the world, that if my party doesn't get in, I mean, we're all going to hell in a handbasket, which I have, have yet to figure out what that phrase even means, all right? I have no idea. I've been struggling to figure that out. But listen, we view the church as the hope of the world. First, First Timothy, I want you to, to look here. First Timothy 3. Paul's writing to to Timothy, this this young pastor. He says, I wanna come to you, but the reason I've written this book, this letter to you is because verse 15, if I delay, I want you to know how, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so he's talked about deacons and elders, leadership, people in the church, how we're to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, or some translations say a pillar and ground of the truth. And I wanna read you this quote here because it maybe will help us to understand what this means. This comes from a commentary, by the Believer's Bible Commentary. It says, the church is spoken of as the pillar and ground of the truth. A pillar was, was not only used to support a structure, but oftentimes a pillar was set up in a public marketplace and notices were posted on it. It was thus a proclaimer, So the church is the unit on earth which God has chosen to proclaim and display his truth. It is also the ground of the truth. Here, ground carries the thought of foundation or supporting structure. This pictures the church as that which is entrusted with the defense and support of the truth of God. And so we're the pillar and ground of the truth. We're, we're to be proclaimers and, and uh, demonstrators. We're to proclaim and demonstrate or put on display the truth of God. We're to, we're to speak and to live for the truth of God. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. And if that is true, we are to practice our politics in the church. We're to practice our politics in the church. So I want you to think about this for a second, because when we think about politics, we think of that as being something, uh, and maybe this is because the church has been hesitant, pastors have been hesitant, I've been hesitant to to speak about politics because we think it's something that's outside the realm of the church, right? You do politics, all that stuff is outside of church world. But if we're followers of Christ, if we're going to invest our hopes first in the church, we've got to practice our politics here, so you remember a couple of weeks ago I defined politics as people living in groups, uh, how they live together. And the church as the people of God, what do we do? It's not about us coming and attending a service, right? It's about us living life together as the people of God on mission together. And so if we're going to practice living together, if we're going to practice politics, uh, we've got to do it here. Because it's easy to say, this is the issue. This is where I stand on this, this issue. This is what I believe. And yet not actually practice it and put it into to motion in our lives, in his church. So let me give you some, some examples. If, as Christ followers, we attend more political rallies and political events, and we're more engaged in political events than we are in the life of the church and the gathering of his people, we're not practicing politics in the church. We've got things backwards. Do you consume? Which means, do you listen to read? Do you consume more news and politics than you do the word of God, the Bible? Do we consume more of that stuff than we do his word? If so, we've got it backwards. We need to consume ourselves more. I'm not saying get rid of everything else, but we should consume this more. If we're going to practice politics in the church, do you talk about or post about the other side more than you pray for them and thank God for them? Which we could all probably be guilty of, right? If we're going to practice politics in the church, living together, we're going to do what the scriptures say. let pray for, give thanks for, make supplications for, all of our leaders, those who are in authority? Are you more vocal about your political affiliation than about your affiliation with Christ? I'm not saying don't talk about your political affiliation, but y'all, there's a lot of Christ followers who are very Mm -hmm. vocal about what party they're a part of or who they support, who maybe have never publicly said who is their Lord Y'all, that's backwards. If we're people of God, first of all, let's let's make sure our allegiance and our affiliation first and foremost is with Christ, the King of Kings. Here's another one. And I'm just giving examples. There's so many more ways we could flesh this out. If we're, if we're pro-life, what are we doing? To not just vote for that issue, but actually to be for life from From the womb to the tomb, what are we doing to invest in kids and children and the next generation in this church if we are really pro-life and not just about an issue? Y'all, we need to not just talk about issues and vote for issues. We need to practice our politics in the church so that when the world looks on, they don't just say, I know what you believe. No, they say, I see how you live your life, that you are for life, that you really believe that every person was made in the image of God because you invest your life in other people. You see what I, are you tracking with me? Uh, Let me read this quote from Jonathan Lehman. He says, the local church should be a model political community for the world. It's the most political of assemblies since it represents the one with final judgment over presidents and prime ministers. Together we confront, condemn, and call nations with the light of our King's words and the saltiness of our lives. The local church, we're not just to take a stance on issues, we're to live them out and practice them in the church in our community, we as the church. He said together, we as the local church. And when, when, he, when we say that, it, that doesn't mean me as the pastor and representative of this church or we as a formal organization, it means we as the people of God, all of us are to live out and to practice politics, firstly in the church and then out in the world. And so, because partnership before party, we're to invest our political hopes firstly in the church. One more thing here, we're to live as an ambassador. I hear you, I'm finishing up. I'm <laughs> gonna live as an ambassador. Live as an ambassador. That was an amen, I, yeah. So here we go, live as an ambassador. So our goal, and let me remind you, again, I'm reminding us of our identity and the activity that flows out of it. Our goal is to win people to Christ not to win an argument or an election. Our goal, our mission is to win people to Christ, not to win an argument or win an election. This is the mission that he has given us as the people of God. This is the main thing. We keep the main thing, the main thing. Our goal is to win people to Christ. 2 Timothy 2, verses three and four, I want you to see What Paul says again here to Timothy, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he comes off this passage of talking about investing in others, discipling others, making disciples of Christ. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Here's what Paul is saying that you're a soldier of Christ and you've been enlisted by God, the father on this mission. And the mission is not to win arguments. It's not to win elections. It's to win people to Christ. This is the mission. This is the main thing. And it's easy. It's easy to get entangled with civilian affairs. He says, don't get wrapped up in those. That doesn't mean don't care for those things, but don't get entangled. Don't let that take over your life and your world. Be wrapped up in the mission that I've called you to. Our mission is to win people, not arguments. And so represent Jesus with meekness and love. We won't go there again, but Colossians 3, we saw it earlier. As, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, were are to put on Compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has for us. This is how we're to live. And so I want to I want to read you here. This quote by Paul Tripp, one of my favorite authors, uh, ministry leaders, he he wrote this post. It's kind of he he likes to do these kind of poems or these poetic kind of essays He wrote this a couple weeks ago and I love it. And I wanna remind us again uh, of who we are. He says this, in that moment when opponents are screaming, tribes are fighting, arguments are escalating, the masses are debating and no one is listening. There is power in a soft answer. There is strength in a tender heart. There is grace to be found in a measured response. There is mercy to be seen in a loving reply. There is only one enemy, not the person different from you, not the one who disagrees with you, not whoever disrespects you, not the one on the other side of the fence. The one true enemy was defeated by one who was despised and rejected, misjudged and forsaken, condemned and mistreated. He won not by being louder, acting stronger, bigger threats, crafty words, stinging retorts, but by a sacrifice. The ultimate battle was won by a gentle, humble, loving servant man. He silenced the enemy, not by being bigger and louder, but by laying down his life, because he loved his enemies. And y'all, rather than feeding into the rage, the rage of the nations. What if we could represent Jesus with meekness and love? If we could put on the new self that he's called us to put on and we could represent Jesus. We could live as an ambassador. The reason we've been put here as exiles is to reach the nation. In fact, let me, let me take you one last verse here. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 verse 7. And let me give you some some closing thoughts here. Jeremiah 29, 7. Spoken to God's people, Israel, in the midst of exile. He says this, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So he says, I've sent you into exile. I've sent you there. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So here's what he says, I've, I've, I've sent you there. I've put you there as an exile. And so seek the welfare of your city, of your nation, of where, the place where I've put you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. And, and so he, he, here's what I want us to understand, that we as the people of God, as exiles, where God has sent us, we do have a duty and a responsibility to be engaged, to participate. And so do your research. Don't just research the issues, research the scriptures. See what God says, do your research, get out and vote, participate. We're to seek the welfare of the place where God has sent us. Most importantly, pray. Pray to the Lord on the behalf of our city, of our nation. Because in in our nation's welfare, we'll, we'll find our welfare. And so we're to be a good citizen of our nation because we're being a good citizen of his kingdom. And I want you to remember, most of all, remember this. No matter who sits in the White House, you know this, that God, the sovereign God of the universe remains seated on the throne. Amen. And God, this morning, we are grateful that you are a sovereign, holy, powerful, all-knowing God who loves us and you care about our lives, you care about the issues that we care about, you care about all of these things, you care about the welfare of our nation and yet you've sent us here as exiles not to put our trust in the government The Psalms say that some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord, our God. And that is our confession this morning, that we wanna live as exiles, ambassadors in this land in which you have placed us. That we are Americans and we are living within a democratic society. And so we wanna be good citizens, but we wanna be good citizens of this nation because we're living as citizens of a holy nation that you've called us into. And so, Lord, I pray for our country, I pray for our nation in this election season and all the things that that are are being talked about and debated. Uh, Lord, I pray, I pray for our country. Our nation needs you. Our our nation needs the light of the gospel. And Lord, the light of the gospel that our nation needs is shed abroad through your people. And so God, I pray that you would help us to live as ambassadors, that we would put our hopes, our political hopes firstly here in your church, that we would live it out here. We'd practice it within this body of believers that you've called us into. Help us to represent you as salt and light and may the world look on and understand what it looks like to be a citizen of your kingdom. And so God, would you help us, all of us in this room, people that watch or listen later, God, everyone who's part of our church, everyone who's a part of your church, God, would you give us wisdom and discernment as we navigate this season? God, that we would hang on to the things that you've made clear, but we would do so with charity, with forbearance and forgiveness. Above all, like Paul said in Colossians three, that we we would put on love that binds us all in unity. And so God, would you help us to live as your people in this place where you've called us. For your glory's sake and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.